Gracious Father, we delight to sing that truth. We delight to remember and to recall the glorious end of all things, that Christ will return, that we will be with Him, with You in glory for all eternity, marveling at Your grace, celebrating Your work in us and through us. Lord, we pray now as we come to Your Word. Um, Lord, You know this. We all come from different battles and struggles. We come from different situations in life, and yet our need is the same. We need more of Christ. We need more of His grace, more of Your wisdom. Uh, Lord, we pray that you that we would follow You in humility, that we would submit joyfully to You and to what You've called us to. Lord, as we look to this passage now, give us understanding. Give us discernment. We pray that You truly would open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. If you would please be seated and open your Bibles once again to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. Go ahead. Let me take a look under the hood. It's something that I might say if I was buying a used car and I knew anything about cars, if I understood how they worked or even what the parts are that make up an engine, I would probably want to take a look under the hood to see what's what. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. That's an expression used to discourage someone from examining a gift too closely. Apparently, I've been told, as horses grow older, they grow more teeth. And the teeth that they do have can begin to change and they can begin to project forward. And so the point is, don't look too closely at this gift. Don't worry so much about the value of the gift. Just accept it and appreciate it for what it is. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. That's what the great and powerful Oz said to Dorothy as they were in the Emerald City as Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion were about to discover the true identity of the great and powerful Oz, the truth about who he really was and what he could really do. So what does taking a look under the hood, looking a gift horse in the mouth, and seeing the man behind the curtain, what does any of this have to do with Second Peter chapter 2? Well, when it comes to false teachers, when it comes to false teaching, Peter not only invites us, commands us to take a look under the hood. Peter wants us to carefully examine this gift horse, really this Trojan horse in the mouth to see what value it has, to see what it is truly worth. Peter wants to pull back the curtain that we would see who these false teachers really are and what they can truly do. Now, last week when we were studying verses 10 to 16, we saw how Peter paints a very graphic and painful picture of these false teachers. In verses 10 to 11, we saw how they are loud, proud, self-guided, and reckless in their attitude. Attitudes and actions. In verse 12, we saw that they are ignorant, irrational, headed for destruction. They sow misery and pain in the lives of other people and they will reap destruction for themselves. 
In verse 13, Peter describes them as shameless, as conscience killers. They are open and defiant in so much of their sin and their self-centeredness. Peter says that they even enjoy deceiving people. They take delight in that as they blend in with true followers of Christ. In verse 14, they're described as expert manipulators, as, as having hearts that are trained in greed. They love their idols, so Peter rightly calls them accursed children. Then in verses 15 and 16, Peter compares present-day false teachers to an Old Testament false prophet named Balaam. Balaam who loved money. Balaam who wanted to curse God's people and see God's people destroyed. But when he couldn't curse God's people, he would teach others how to corrupt God's people, how to deceive them, how to mislead them. He was ultimately rebuked by his own donkey and destroyed in his foolishness. Now, after saying all of that, I'm beginning to think that Peter's not really a fan of false teachers. I'm, 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 I'm beginning to think that Peter actually believes that false teachers are a threat and a danger that they need to be exposed and recognized for who and what they are. Like we said last week, and it's so important to remember this overall context as we come to a passage like this, Peter is guided and directed by the Holy Spirit as he writes these words. Peter, possessing a right understanding and knowledge of God and His holiness and His glory, Peter, out of love for his readers, out of love for us, he gives us these clear details and descriptions of these false teachers. Now, for this morning, as we bring this section and this chapter to a close in verses 17 to 22, uh, we will see Peter expose the false root and the poisonous fruit of false teachers. And here's how he does this. Please note this on your outline. In verse 17, Peter makes some sweeping and bold claims about false teachers. And then in verses 18 to 22, he explains why, why these claims are true. And by, and by explaining these claims, and this is so important, Peter shows us clearly why and how Jesus is so much better. Jesus is so much better. Unlike these false teachers, Jesus gives true hope. Lasting hope. Jesus actually fulfills his promises. Jesus is light and he is life. He is not death and darkness. Jesus provides powerful, lasting freedom for his people. Jesus is better. He is superior in every way. And so with that in mind, look again at verse 17. Peter writes, these, these false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Noted on your outline, here we see the big, bold, sweeping claim, and it's this, false teachers are hopeless, empty, and destined for the darkest, gloomiest, most miserable expressions of God's anger and wrath. And so, obviously, if this is true, the implication is you would be crazy to put your hope in them. 
You would be crazy to invest your life with them. You would be crazy to follow them, imitate them, and learn from them. According to Peter, Peter says they are like waterless springs. Now, think about that for a moment. What good is a spring without any water? It serves no purpose. It is just a hole in the ground. It is useless. It is good for nothing. It cannot sustain you. And this is what false teachers are like. You may come to them like a thirsty and tired traveler who has been hiking for miles and miles. And when you get to this spring, what do you find? What do you get to refresh your soul and to bring benefit to you? In a word, nothing. You get nothing of value and benefit and worth. And so there you are, a tired, weary traveler sitting next to a hole in the ground. That's what it's like to follow and to learn from false teachers. This is what they are like, but Jesus is so very different. What did, what did Jesus say? How did Jesus describe himself? What did Jesus promise to do for his followers? He said, really he cried out in John 7 saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now stop there for just a moment. This is an amazing promise. But what does this mean? Well, John tells us. He then adds this word of commentary. He says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, false teachers, waterless, empty holes in the ground. Jesus, living water. Jesus gives an invitation to come and to drink and to believe in Him, to find life and joy in Him. Jesus gives the promise of His Spirit that He will give to His followers, that He will turn His people into springs of water to reflect His life and His joy and His gracious invitation. And of course, Jesus did fulfill His promise on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and the believers were filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit continues to live in the people of God. So false teachers are like waterless springs, but they're also like, says Peter, mists driven by a storm. What does that mean? I like how Chuck Swindoll explains this in his commentary. He writes, Normally, storms drive rain clouds, bursting with water to nourish crops and prevent drought. But apostates deceive people with thunderous claims and flashy appeal, bringing with them not spiritually nourishing doctrine, but only useless mists. What a, what a disappointment. What a letdown to see the clouds moving in, to see what you think is a storm coming to be filled with hope because you need water, but all you get is mist. You are left with cheap fog that helps you in no way. It just leaves everything murky and hazy. That's what false teachers are like. They inspire hope, but they never deliver on their promises. How unlike Jesus. 
How unlike Christ. How unlike the promises we've been given in Him. Peter told us in chapter 1 that through Christ we have been given His precious and very great promises. Peter told us back in his first letter, all the way back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he said that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Jesus is not like a mist. He is not like a fog. He is substance. He is a living. He is faithful to His bride. He is at the right hand of the Father praying for His people. He is actually worthy of your trust. But for false teachers, their final destination is anything but hopeful. Peter says so bluntly at the end of verse 17, For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And brothers and sisters, that's as bad as it sounds. That's as bad as it as it sounds. If that sounds serious, it is meant to sound serious. It is, it is meant to be so. Why is this such disturbing news for false teachers? Because... God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. What Peter is saying is that these false teachers will be separated. They will be completely cut off from the kind, warm, loving, gracious presence of God. They will be sentenced to the gloom of utter darkness in hell. Just a few verses earlier, Peter wrote something similar about Angels, now demons, who had rebelled against God. Uh, We read in verse 4 that, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Right? God judged these rebellious angels, and the point is, God will judge these rebellious false teachers. Unless we think that this is just some crazy idea that Peter invented, that Peter came up with, we need to remember that Jesus said many things similar to this. Jesus said many things similar to this. At the end of one of his parables about entering into a king's wedding feast for his son, Jesus describes a man who rejected the king's provision. Uh, Jesus describes a man who comes into this wedding feast on his own terms, wearing his own clothes, in his, in his own way. And this is how Jesus describes the fate of that man. He says, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, it is that serious to reject Jesus Christ. It is that serious to reject God's provision for you in Christ. The truth is, you need Jesus more than you know. You do. You need Jesus more than you know. And it's that serious to lead others astray. It is that serious to deceive others. To, as we learned last week, as we saw last week, to use people, to use them, to manipulate them, to prey upon them for personal gain. It is that serious to hide the truth of the gospel from them, which is why Peter writes what he writes next. Peter explains why God is so just and right 
to condemn these false teachers. He is. Peter explains how horrible their actions are, how sinister and dangerous their lies are to people. These false teachers, they make themselves targets for God's wrath. They open themselves up to the judgment of God by their outrageous behavior. What do they, what do they do exactly? Look again at verse 18. Peter writes, For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Number one, please note this on your outline, false teachers we see love to prey upon Newer, younger, less mature believers. They do. They, they love to target the new Christian. They love to target the new believer. The one who has just begun walking with Jesus. Who has just entered into the path of life. Who has just repented. They've just turned the corner. They're now escaping from error. Escaping from their old way of life. And this is who the false teacher loves to come up alongside and start to boast about their achievement and their spiritual knowledge and how much they know. This is the person that the false teacher begins to entice and to draw away. Peter says pulling them back into the sensual passions of the flesh. Simon J. Kistemacher explains it this way in his commentary, saying, Like carnivorous animals that prey on the weakest members of a herd, so the false teachers focus their attention on recent converts, believers who have not had sufficient time to grow in grace and understanding of the Christian faith, now have to endure the enticements of apostates. Now, sometimes the Bible calls this kind of teaching about following the passions of the flesh. Sometimes the Bible calls this licentiousness. Sometimes the Bible describes this kind of teaching and practice as indulging the flesh, as walking in the flesh. And this is often the approach that false teachers take when they're trying to shift someone's focus away from Christ and on to them. Please note this on your outline. False teachers either subtly or overtly encourage people to follow the flesh, follow the flesh, follow the flesh. They say things like, don't think so much about sin and holiness. Learn to trust your feelings. They sound like a Jedi master. Trust your feelings. Look inward, Luke. Trust your feelings. They, they say things like, don't worry so much about being like Jesus. Listen, Jesus wants you to be happy. And if he has given you these desires, then he must want you to follow them. They say things like, don't worry about the commands of Scripture. Don't worry about the historic teachings of the church. God understands. He gets it. In fact, He's evolving right along with us. He's learning right along with us. He wants you to believe in yourself. And listen, even if this does technically turn out to be wrong, even if this does technically turn out to be sin, don't worry. There's grace for that. It doesn't really matter. God has to forgive you. It's what He does. He's a God of grace. Don't worry about it. Like Peter says, these are loud boasts of folly. 
these kinds of words are meant to confuse. They are meant to pull believers back into old practices that they're just learning to escape. Next, look at verse 19. Peter writes, They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Noted on your outline, number two, false teachers love to promise what they themselves don't possess. I mean, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. It, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. These false teachers, they love to talk about their freedom. They love to even promise freedom to others. They love to boast about how amazing and wonderful their lives are now that they are so free. But the dirty little secret is they are not free. They are not free. They are slaves to their sinful desires. They are slaves to their greed. Their hearts are trained in greed. They are slaves to the power and to the pride that they feel when they control and use other people. They are idol worshippers who must continually serve the God and the idol that continually disappoints them. It is, it is absolutely tragic because all idols disappoint. Idols do not satisfy. They are false gods and false saviors. Paul Gardner says it so well in his commentary where, 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 where he writes these words. These false teachers claimed to have freedom, but in fact, in not obeying Christ, they found themselves serving their own selfish ends of depravity. They were so mastered by their depravity that they were even creating a theology to justify their behavior. Their lives reveal the lie they are promoting. Again, helping true believers recognize false teachers. Now, on the other hand, Jesus actually does give freedom to his people, to his children, to his followers. Jesus does give and offer and provide freedom. Jesus said in John eight thirty six, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Paul, writing in Galatians 5.1, says, For freedom Christ has set us free. And then he adds these words, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, do you hear what's in that verse? There is both joy and warning. There is joy and warning in that verse. Paul is saying, do not submit again to slavery. Do not present yourself again as a slave to sin. You have died to that. You are now free in Christ. You are free to know God. You are free to enjoy Him. You are free to fulfill the purposes for which you have been created. You are free to delight in and to remember His grace and His love towards you. This is why Peter began his letter all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4, reminding us that believers are those who are partakers of the divine nature, having done what? Having escaped. Having escaped in Christ 
from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Brothers and sisters, this is freedom. This is freedom. We've escaped corruption. We have been set free from that so that we can now supplement our faith, writes Peter. Your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So the point is, please don't run back into the prison cell. Please don't. Don't. Stop. Stop going back. Don't, listen, don't go back and join the people who are boasting about their freedom while they are shackled to the wall. What are you doing? They're lying to you. They don't know what they're talking about. They are not free. They are overrun by their sin, overcome by their sin. They are delusional and self-deceived. You can, you can almost hear echoes of Romans 6 here in 2 Peter. In Romans 6, Paul writes to believers so joyfully, so confidently saying, Let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not Present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members as instruments for righteousness. And then he closes with these words which should be tattooed on the inside of your eyelids. It is so important. Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. False teachers are a sad lot. They promise freedom. They talk about freedom. They have no freedom. By rejecting Christ, they remain enslaved to their sinful, selfish desires. Now, this should cause us to say how good it is to be in Christ. How good it is to know the victory and the cleansing and the forgiveness that Jesus gives. Jesus gives true freedom from the power and penalty of sin. Praise his name. Next, look at verses 20 to 21. Peter writes, For if, after they, referring to false teachers, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Stop there for just a moment. That word entangled, so interesting. It's a, it's a weaving word. Paul describes these false teachers as being interwoven back into the fabric of sin and deception and worldliness and ungodliness. He says they are again entangled in them and overcome. He says the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Noted on your outline, number three, false teachers, they love to play with the gospel, but never truly submit to it. 
They love to play with the gospel. This is what Peter is describing here. False teachers, they clearly, they do know. They can articulate. They can say the facts of the gospel. They can tell you true things about Jesus. They can say true things. False teachers, they even, Paul, as Peter describes this, they have benefited in some ways from knowing the truth, from knowing God's standard of righteousness. They have benefited from being associated with the people of God, these false teachers. They have been exposed to so much light. They have been exposed to so much of the grace and truth of God. And yet Peter says that their last state is now worse than how they began. Their last state is worse than their first. Peter says that they have left the truth. They've become entangled and interwoven and overcome by sin and the world. Peter says that it would have been better for them to have never known the truth than to have known it so well and to have completely rejected it. Now, what does all of this mean? This is, this is a hard thing that Peter says here. This sounds very harsh and difficult to our ears. Well, I think Peter's words become clear. I think they are clear. I think they become even more clear if we look at them in context with and in comparison to a few other New Testament passages. Please note this on your outline. What Peter writes here, it makes so much sense. When we think about A, Jesus' parable of the seed and the sower. B, Jesus' teaching in Luke eleven twenty six. C, Jesus' warning in Luke twelve forty seven to 48. And D, when we remember the life and example of Judas. Judas who knew so much truth and betrayed Jesus anyway. So let's unpack this just for a moment. In Jesus' parable of the seed and the sower, recorded in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8, the seed is scattered, meaning the gospel is proclaimed. And the seed lands on all kinds of soils, various soils, just like the gospel lands on different kinds of hearts. Some are not receptive to the gospel at all. Some truly do receive the gospel. And it is proven, it is known, it is seen by what? It is seen by growth, it is seen by fruit, it is seen by a great harvest. And the point of the parable is some, some appear to receive the gospel. Only appear to receive the gospel at first and then completely fall away. They abandon the truth. They walk away from Christ. The point is, this is descriptive of false teachers. They are the thorny, weedy soil. Jesus explains that with the thorny, weedy soil, quote, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. These false teachers do not bear good fruit. These false teachers were never truly saved because the gospel, it has been choked in their hearts. It has been rejected in their hearts in favor of riches in favor of pursuing sin and evil desires found in the world. Next, in Luke 11.26, 
we see a fascinating parallel between something that Jesus said and what Peter writes here. In fact, if you look at the Greek construction, it almost appears that Peter is copying and quoting from Jesus verbatim. In Luke 11, Jesus describes a sad situation. In Luke 11, Jesus describes a sad situation where an unclean spirit is heavily involved in a person's life, corrupting that life, bringing chaos into that life. And that is a miserable thing. That is a terrible thing. That is a heartbreaking thing. But what happens if that unclean spirit temporarily leaves and that person gets some relief? That person begins to put their life back in order, but that person does not feel, feel their life with Christ, does not submit their life to Christ. That person does not feel his life with the power and the presence and the grace of God. What happens if that unclean spirit decides to return to this now Empty, still empty, unprotected life. What happens if this unclean spirit doesn't just return, but brings some friends along with it? Here's how Jesus describes this disaster in Luke eleven twenty six. He says, then it, referring to the unclean spirit, goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And now here's the part that Peter quotes verbatim from Jesus. And now the last state of that person is worse than the first. You say, okay, what does that mean? What does that, what does this teach us? It teaches us that, listen, it's not enough. It's not sufficient to just clean up your act a little bit. It's not sufficient. It's not enough to get rid of a few sins, to make yourself look good on the outside. It's not enough. It's not sufficient to have a mildly cleaned up, empty life. No, sin and temptation and evil influence will come flooding back in. The point of Jesus' teaching is you need to have a life that is filled with and cleansed by and submitted to Him. Jesus is our only hope. He is powerful and He is good and His grace is actually sufficient for you. These false teachers, according to Peter, they had at one time, they had outwardly cleaned up their act. They appeared to be genuine. They appeared to be orthodox but they were empty. It was a lie. And now their last state, their ending condition is even worse than how it all began. And one of the obvious reasons why this is so much worse and why their condition is so much more severe is because of Jesus' warning in Luke 12. In Luke 12, Jesus has some very hard things to say to those who know the word of God and reject it. Jesus has some very hard things to say to those who have received so much light and who have run back to the darkness. Jesus has hard things to say to those who know what God wants, who know what the Master desires, but they refuse to honor Him and they refuse to respect Him. Jesus says it like this in Luke 12:47. He says, And that servant... 
who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. And then Jesus summarizes his teaching like this. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Peter knows this. Peter believes this. And the fact is, these false teachers had received so much truth. And so they will face a greater judgment. They will bear a more severe accountability before God because they have known the way and they have hated the way. They have tasted of the goodness of God and they have cursed the goodness of God. They have cursed the grace of God and the gospel of God and they have instead subtly sought to draw others back into darkness. Lastly, Peter's words make sense when we think about the life and example of Judas, Judas Iscariot, who walked with Jesus, who had seen the miracles of Christ, who had seen God in human flesh, and he chose money. He chose greed over Jesus. Judas never truly loved or worshipped Christ, and neither did these false teachers, and that is Peter's point. So, in light of all of this, What is there left to say? Peter has one last comment, one last proverb to summarize the truth he's been explaining. Look again at verse 22. Peter writes, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Please note it on your outline. Number four, false teachers love to pretend like they've changed only to return to old sins. This is a very sad summary, obviously, of false teachers. They are not new creations in Christ. They are not alive in Christ. They are like dogs eating their own vomit. They are like pigs running back to the mud. And remember, listen, remember in in Peter's day, Dogs were not considered beloved pets, like my black lab gunner, who is a national treasure. He's, he's an absolute treasure. Dogs during Peter's day, they were not considered pets, they were considered scavengers. Jews would often call Gentiles dogs to express their distaste for them of the fact that they were unclean. And pigs, of course, were unclean, dirty animals to be avoided, to never be eaten. And Peter's point is this, is that inwardly they consume what is defiled, this this vomit. They take it back in, they get rid of it, only to take it back in. They are not changed outwardly. They continue to roll in the filth of their own sin and the point is this is what a false teacher is like they are to be seen for what they are and they are to be rejected in their teaching and in their example so after hearing all of that you may be thinking fine but what about us 
Like, what do we do now in light of this truth, in light of chapter 2, and how many hard things that Peter has to say about false teachers? Let me close by giving you three quick points of application that I hope and pray are obvious and evident. But just in case they're not, I will say them anyway. Application number one is this. Brothers and sisters, let us press on towards maturity in Christ. This is always the goal. This is always the way to enjoy and to delight in Christ. As we have studied earlier, who do false teachers love to target? Who do false teachers love to go after, to prey upon them? In verse 14, Peter tells us they go after unsteady souls. In verse 18, Peter tells us they go after those who are barely escaping from those uh, in error. So the point is this, don't you be one of those unsteady souls. Don't be an unsteady soul. Don't be one who is vacillating, the one who is tossed around by every wind and wave of, of, of doctrine, but grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's, that's funny. That's how Peter is going to end this entire letter by telling us to continue to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus. Supplement your faith with all of the things that Peter talked about in chapter 1 as Spurgeon has famously said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Live in the Bible. Be anchored in God's Word. Be alert and awake and firm in your faith. Be sober-minded. Take advantage of opportunities for growth in things like small groups, adult Bible fellowships, the shore, Awana, PM elective classes. Take advantage of these things. Pursue growth and never stop. That is one clear application. Application number two, note this on your outline. Dare to question. Dare to use God's word to examine and test all that you hear. And as you do this, ask for God's help. Pray for discernment. Pray for discernment. Listen, there is no pastor elder There is no deacon, there is no director, there is no author, there is no TV personality, no matter how big or influential their ministry is, that is above scrutiny and examination. You test, you examine, you compare with Scripture to see What God actually says, you start doing this and you never stop doing this. And as you do this, you pray. You pray for God to open your eyes and your ears and your heart to the truth. You pray for God to give you understanding and discernment. You pray for wisdom. You pray that God would protect your heart and your mind from what is false and harm and dangerous. And you pray for your leaders. You pray for your pastors, elders, deacons, directors. You pray for the brothers and sisters around you that we would walk in truth together. Lastly, number three, application number three, be courageous to help others keep their eyes on Christ and his word. Peter wrote this to a group of believers. This was not written to one individual. This was written to a body of believers to a group spread out over various areas. Say, why does that matter? 
Because it's not just about you. It's not just about me. This isn't just about your growth and your well-being. We want to encourage others to love Christ, to love His Word. We want to encourage others to both study and stand upon truth. Why? So that believers will be built up. So that Jesus will be seen and known and loved and worshipped because He is worthy. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would guide us. We pray that by the ministry of your Spirit, you would keep us from error. We pray that as we look into your word, as we study the truth, that we would indeed have eyes to see. Lord, in these days where... It is so easy to be led astray. It is so easy for our eyes to become unfocused and to be taken off of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would heed well what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 just encouraged us to do, that we would always be looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. God, let us keep our eyes on Christ that we may walk and live according to truth and that we may do this joyfully, celebrating you, praising you, worshiping you each and every day. And we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.